Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a next-generation politics podcast. Next-generation politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Hiva, and at this week's Roundtable, Emmanuel, Hannah, and you and I spoke with Dan Schnur, who stands as a beacon of political enlightenment. With a tenure spanning over two decades at the University of California, Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine University, Dan's teaching expertise has shaped the minds of our future leaders. His courses in politics, communications, and leadership serve as a bedrock for a new generation of politically astute individuals. Dan's influence extends far beyond the classroom, however. His experience in the political arena spans numerous milestones, reflecting a commitment to reform and a keen understanding of governance. As the chairman of the California Fair Political Practices Commission, Dan implemented pioneering campaign finance disclosure requirements, revolutionizing the state's political landscape. Moreover, his founding of the Voices of Reform project laid the groundwork for California's landmark redistricting reform. Beyond theory and strategy, Dan's journey encompasses practical experience at the forefront of major political campaigns, with roles in four presidential and three gubernatorial campaigns, including serving as the National Director of Communications for Senator John McCain's 2000 presidential campaign, as well as the Chief Media Spokesperson for Governor Pete Wilson, Dan's expertise is unparalleled. His dedication to nonpartisan governance reform is evident in initiatives such as Fixing California, a campaign focused on campaign finance and political reform. His bold step as a nonpartisan candidate for California Secretary of State in the year 2014 underscores his commitment to transcending political divides for the greater good. Dan's voice reverberates across leading publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and the LA Times. Furthermore, his role as a trusted analyst and political commentator for major news networks like CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and NPR amplifies his influence, positioning him as a guiding light in navigating complex political landscapes. Dan is an incisive guide through the labyrinth of contemporary politics, offering not just analyses, but pathways towards a more unified, informed, and participatory political landscape. Join us in our enlightening journey with the engineer, where conversations become catalysts for positive change in American politics. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Next Gen Politics Podcast. My name is Emmanuel, and I am really interested to talk about the 2024 elections. My whole thought process for this whole year has been back and forth between it's way too early to talk about this right now. Why are people coming out with candidacies into nobody's talking about this? We need to talk about this. I'm looking forward to talking a bit more about the 2024 elections, but also you have a colorful resume and i'm willing to learn a lot more about what you have done in more detail hello everybody my name is hannah i'm here from delaware and just piggybacking off of what emmanuel said there when we when i saw your resume just all the experience that you have right before we actually started this podcast episode i was like how do you have the time of day like it's just so many things that you've accomplished it's really impressive i'm really excited to piggyback and hear about your experience throughout your career. And something that I'm also really intrigued to get your opinion about is just 
when looking at our nation's two-party system, what you think the future of that is looking like and how media is playing a role and how the polarization of the different topics and issues that are currently like ongoing within the nation, how that is contributing to the possible divide between political parties and even within political parties themselves. So I'm really intrigued and interested to hear what your perspective is on that division, whether it's going to be getting better, whether it's going to be getting worse, if we're going to stay this way, and just to hear what you have to say. So I'm really excited about that. Hello, all. Welcome, Daniel Schnur. I'm Hiba, a junior in high school, and I live in New York. As I was reading your bio, each bullet made me increasingly impressed. I'm just going to be honest. And I'm especially looking forward to talking about, like Emmanuel said, the precarious 2024 presidential election, as well as just what it's like to work on multiple presidential campaigns. I'm in you. I'm in Texas. And I'm excited to discuss kind of what the future of the Republican Party will look like. I think I've always been kind of surrounded by people that were like a bit more like left leaning throughout my entire life. So it's always been kind of interesting to learn more about the GOP. My name is Dan Schnur and my wife and my grandmother and Hiba call me Daniel, but otherwise either Dan or Daniel is just fine. I was raised uh, just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I got involved in campaigns uh, at a very early age, my first campaign was during my sophomore year in college, and I worked on four presidential campaigns and three campaigns for governor of California over the years before I left politics, first to advise a series of nonprofit and foundation clients, including the Gates Foundation. And my most recent uh, career has been in the classroom, and it's the best job I've ever had, even better than working for presidents of the United States is working with amazing young people at UC Berkeley, at USC, and at Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Public Policy. I teach classes in politics, communications, and leadership. And by far my favorite thing, aside from my family, is bragging about the amazing things my students do after they finish in my class. So be careful, or I could fill this entire podcast by telling you what an incredible work they've done uh, over the course of their careers in public service. That's really exciting. I would love to hear at some point, hopefully if we have enough time, some of the things that your students are doing. But to get us started, I'd really like to ask you, what's your take on why do people not really seem to care about politics all that much? Next Generation Politics, I bring that up because Next Gen, we have a social media platform. I'm one of the social media creators on the Instagram. And actually at our last meeting, we were just talking about that, about what can we do to really help incentivize politics and make it seem like, oh, this is something that's impacting you directly. This is something that you should be invested in. And for next gen, our audience is definitely targeted again towards Gen Z, Gen Alpha, that younger generation, getting them involved and using their voices for advocacy. But overall, in all of your experience, why would you say, because I know they're even, it's it's not like Gen Z and Generation Alpha are the only ones that are not really getting involved or saying that they don't care. What would you say the overall reason is in your experience, why people seem to be deterred and afraid to get involved with politics? So Hannah, I'll offer you this to start with. Um, most people don't care about politics because they don't understand politics. And that's not their fault. That's ours. I think one of the greatest challenges for any civic activist or any community leader is to remember that most of the members of their community who don't care about politics 
These people aren't stupid. They're not lazy. They're busy. And they have school, they have jobs, they have families, they have all sorts of obligations that are very tangible and very urgent and right in front of them. And politics sounds sort of abstract. And so most people don't understand how politics fits into the rest of their life. And that's our fault for not explaining it, right? So my feeling is, is that when you care deeply about something, anything, it might be politics, it could be music, it could be your favorite sports team. When you care really deeply about it, it's sort of natural to assume that everyone cares about it just as much as you do. So think about it. Your favorite singer, your favorite movie, your favorite sports team, your favorite topic in school, you want to spend all your time talking about it. And you just naturally assume that everybody else does too. And of course they don't. And so for those of us who care deeply about politics, we assume that everyone else wants to talk about it as much as we do. And so what happens is we begin to think of politics as an end unto itself. Being politically involved is a good thing. Being civically engaged is an admirable pursuit. What we forget is that for most people in our communities, politics is just a means to an end. Politics might mean better schools for their children. It might mean safer communities. It might mean more affordable health care. It might be fixing a broken immigration system. And so when we talk about politics, we tend to be talking about process and what the best leaders do in both parties of all ideologies of all ages is they don't spend a lot of time talking about politics in the context of conventions and debates and polls or even elections. I always used to tell my candidates, the most important day of the election for us is election night. The most important day in a campaign for everyone else in our community is the day after the election because that's the day the work starts to make our community a better place. And I think of all of us as committed activists, remember to talk about politics, not as the goal, but as the tool that can help us in our communities reach those goals. I think it becomes much easier to get the more casual observer to understand why politics is relevant to them and not just for those old white guys on TV. So kind of on the state of politics, the Republican Party in like its current form has always kind of had a hint of populism, whether it's like Pat Buchanan or like Ross Parrott, but it never really managed to like rear its head until like 2016. But even then where it mattered, populists, and they go by like neo right or the national conservatives, right? Um, they never really managed, I feel like, to alter the Republican Party significantly. There was like no great purge of Reaganites. There was like the Paul Ryan tax cut, you know, Mitch McConnell still there. And that kind of makes me wonder whether the populist presence within the GOP is kind of like an abnormal phase it's undergoing that's temporary, or whether the GOP really has kind of changed for good. And, you know, I think you're asking two really, really smart questions. One about the future of the Republican Party, and we can come back to that one in a minute. But the first question about populism, I think is a little bit bigger and a, a little bit broader than you intended. And so I'd like to start with that one because populism has been a force throughout the history of politics, not just American politics, but the history of politics since the ancient Greeks. The modern day Republican party does not have sole ownership of populism. Cause if you think about it, the concept that you're intelligently pointing to, if you think about it definitionally, Populism is the voice of the people being heard in an unfiltered way. 
And over the course of our country's history, we've seen very strong populist movements from the far left to the far right and everywhere in between. So right now, the most obvious populist impact comes from the conservative right, but I wouldn't necessarily limit its impact to one party or one ideology. I'll give you another example. In 2016, I would argue to you that not just one, but two very talented populists ran for president. One was Donald Trump, one was Bernie Sanders. Both of them challenged the orthodox of these of their own parties in a very aggressive and confrontational and effective way. Now, the advantage that Trump had over Sanders is the Republican Party was already going through a series of struggles. And so its party hierarchy, its establishment, was more vulnerable to the voices of populism. Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, was running after eight years of an Obama administration, running against the former Secretary of State and spouse of the former President of the United States. If you think about it, the fact that Sanders came within a hair's breadth of beating the strongest front runner that either party has ever had in modern history, the fact that Sanders came that close to beating Hillary Clinton, in some ways was almost as impressive a victory for populism as Donald Trump's was on the conservative side. So the question then is, we want the people to have their voices heard in politics, of course, but our founders in their wisdom did not establish a pure direct democracy. They established, as all of you learned in your civics and social studies classes, they established a republic. And the idea being that if our populist passions unbridled drove the debate, that debate would quickly get out of control and we wouldn't be able to get anything done. So by putting together a structure that allows those voices to be heard, but creates a pathway for them to be heard and discussed and debated in a more productive way. And when unbridled populism breaks through, whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's Bernie Sanders, whether it's Ross Perot or AOC, that's a necessary and important part of the political discussion. But the reason we don't just have a mass referenda on every issue voted on by the country is to bridle those passions a little bit. And, and I know you've all learned about this too, I'm going a little bit off topic. The other reason that we put together a structure under which these voices are heard is all of you learned is to protect the rights of the minority. Because in a pure populist democracy, if I have one more person who supports my goals than yours in you, then I win everything and you lose everything. And the separation of powers, the principles of federalism is decide to make sure that everybody has a stake in the system going forward. And also, and then finally, I'll shut up so the next person can ask a question. Um, I think our system, the way it's set up, reminds us even when our populist passions are at their strongest, our system, the way it exists, is designed to remind us the importance of humility. Because if I get just one vote more than you do in you, that doesn't mean that I'm right about everything and you're wrong about everything. A system of checks and balances, a separation of powers, a system of federalism means that I'm obligated to listen to you, whether I have one more vote than you do or whether you have one more vote for me. So I want those populist voices in the discussion, but I don't want just those screaming voices to dominate the discussion. 
to uh, to interfere with a kind of more reasoned debate that's necessary for us to achieve our goals. All right, that was a long rambling answer, but as I think you could tell, you touched a button. So I promise to be more uh, more to the point for the next question. We could talk about the Republican Party too, if you like, going forward. But I think it is important that we all remember that populism comes from every point on the political spectrum, not just one. Piggybacking, but also slightly changing the subject from GOP politics and populism, I noticed that you said that being a professor of politics, um, communications and leadership was and is the highlight of your career. Um, despite working in national politics, you also talked a little bit earlier about some ways you teach and advise your students. Um, and I guess I would love to know more about that as well as why you value teaching and educating youth to the point that it almost outshines what many would assume were the shining stars of your career. Well, I'm very proud of the work I did in politics and in government, but I was one person in a really big world. And what I like about teaching is rather than it just being up to me to make change happen, I get to work with dozens, hundreds of young people who are dedicated to making change. And so rather than it just being one person making an impact, I get to watch hundreds and hundreds making a difference in a whole range of different ways. And to me, that's a much broader range of change. It's a much deeper difference. And for me, it's a much more meaningful sense of satisfaction because it wasn't just me. It was so many more people all working for the kind of change they believe in, whether or not, and this is a really important point, whether or not I happen to agree with them. Um, I want my students to get involved and make a difference, whether they happen to be on my side of the debate or not. I'm now, as you could tell from my biography, I worked in Republican politics for many years, but I became an independent, or as we're called here in California, a no party preference voter many years ago. And I tell my students on the first day of class, I said, I'm gonna leave my politics at the door and I want you to do the same thing because I don't want any of my students to ever think they have to agree with me in order to get a good grade. If you wanna know what I think about the issues, and if you wanna tell me what you think about them, then let's set up a time to meet outside of class. But in here, we're not just gonna scream and yell at each other. We're gonna learn how to make a difference. And so whether a student happens to agree with everything I believe or with nothing I believe, I do everything I can to help that young woman or that young man get their start in public service. Because I would a thousand times rather have them involved on what I might consider to be the wrong side of the fight than not involved at all. I really appreciate that, especially because next generation politics is extremely pragmatic and nonpartisan. Um, and I guess we understand the value of staying that way. And um, it's really amazing how you put politics to the side to focus on really just educating the next generation of learners. Yeah, my, my job is to give them the tools, not to tell them what to use them for. I would just like to take a step back to when I was introducing myself and I was interested in about the campaign process. And you said there was a lot to talk about. So I guess my overall question is, can you elaborate a little more, especially because it has been a bit confusing for me. One time is too far into the future to focus on the elections. Another time is too soon. So, so Emmanuel, if I remember correctly, the, the point that you were focused on, uh, most of several, was the length of the campaigns. Is that correct? You seem to go on forever and ever and ever, right? Yes. 
Okay. So I'll tell you who agrees with you completely is my wife. Uh, my wife, Cecile, is British by birth and was raised in the Caribbean in the country of Trinidad and Tobago in a parliamentary system. And her home country of Great Britain, as you may know, has a very short several week election cycle. And the election starts and ends within a matter of weeks. And she thinks that's very fine. It's very neat. It's very tidy. We pay attention for a very short period of time and then it ends. I, I don't agree with that. Um, and I'll tell you why. Because over the course of a long, exhausting campaign, and if you're campaigning for any office, especially President of the United States, for two or more years, it isn't just long, it's exhausting. I want to see those men and women not just at their best. I want to see them at their worst. I want to see them when they're in bad moods. I want to see them when they haven't gotten enough sleep. I want to see them when they're crabby and grouchy and had a really bad day and don't feel like being nice to the voters, but have to anyway. Because I know if one of those women or one of those men gets elected president, not every day is going to be a great day. There's going to be days where they're really stressed out and in really bad moods. And I want to see how they handle it. Because ultimately, whether it's a president of the United States or one of my students or one of my friends or family members, we can all put on a really good show. Think about it. When you're doing your college admissions interviews, think of how impressive you're going to be, right? Well, for up to me, I'd want to see when you are you're less well-prepared because that way I can get a much better and broader sense of you. And over the course of a long, arduous, difficult campaign, there's lots of moments where any human being is just going to show a side of themselves they'd rather not. And it's those glimpses that tell me the character of a person. In the classes I teach on leadership, one of the most important points I make, they say, leaders have flaws. Leaders make mistakes. None of us are perfect. The goal of a good leader is not to never make a mistake. The goal of a good leader is when you get knocked down to stand up again. So if I know that they have flaws, if I know that they have warts, if I know that they have shortcomings, I want to know what they are before I put them in the Oval Office. Because if I know not only what they're gonna be like on their best days, but if I know what they're gonna be like on their worst days, I can actually have a greater level of comfort on how they're gonna represent us as a people and as a country. I'll, um, I'll give you an example. This goes, back, uh, this goes back some years. It goes back to the 2004 presidential campaign. There was a candidate running for the Democratic nomination by the name of Howard Dean. He'd been the former governor of Vermont. And Howard Dean was the only major candidate for president that year in either party who had opposed the war in Iraq. And as you might guess, he developed a great deal of support from progressive voters and from young people. So he ended up unexpectedly becoming one of the front runners for the Democratic nomination when no one paid any attention to him at the outset. And in the last weeks before the Iowa caucuses, as you know, the first of many, many stop along the primary trail, um, he lost. He lost that night. And he got on stage. You can, you can find it on YouTube. If you want to, you can search for the Dean Scream. And it shows him up on stage trying to exhort his followers to follow him forward. And he was so tired and so strung out and so out of control and so disappointed out of, of, from having been defeated 
what started out as a fairly coherent inspirational speech turned into just this very guttural, it was, they called it the Dean's scream. He ended up just yelling and making noises from the stage. And I remember thinking to myself, whether I'm a supporter of Howard Dean's or not, is this the way I want the leader of my country conducting himself when he's feeling stress? And if anybody wants for the purposes of bipartisanship, I can give a really good Republican example too, but we can come back to that. So Emmanuel, back to your question. I like a long campaign for the same reason I like a basketball game that goes into triple overtime or a soccer match that goes into a shootout. Because I want to see these players, I want to see these candidates when they've left it all on the field and they don't have anything else left. And we still need to be able to look at them as leaders. But if you disagree with me, I can put my wife on after we're done. I think I learned a lot and I actually do see where you come from. I haven't thought about it that way, but it makes me actually agree with you. I agree. Like I'd rather see someone for who they are versus a glimpse in the glitz and glamour. So thank you for changing my mind. Oh, well, you're welcome, but you should feel free to change it back. This is an opinion, not a fact. So again, on the topic of the Republican Party, which I'm- you know, You're stubborn and I like that. So thank you for bringing us back to it. So going back to the Cold War, the United States is kind of the arsenal of tradition in direct conflict with the Soviet Union, which like backed leftist movements like worldwide. Um, the United States position in the world right now has been completely reversed with like our adversaries, like reviling the woke United States. So like Russia has like, for example, bans, like passed a lot of anti-LGBTQ laws. China has like banned effeminate men from the internet. Iran's like obviously theocracy, um, right? So America's newfound position along in the world alongside with disillusionment well, by many conservatives with the direction of American society has, I think, resulted in a kind of vibrant and growing isolationist wing of the party. Do you think that the Republican Party can maintain their commitment to an American-led world order going into the future? I have to tell you, and you, that is my greatest concern. And once again, I would not limit the concern simply to the Republican Party, because the growing stains, strains of isolationism we're seeing in both parties are very noticeable, very profound, and very dangerous. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this. You've all studied American history, which means you that you know that for the last century plus, after every major military conflict and after every major economic downturn, our country turns inward. After World War I, after World War II, after Korea and Vietnam, after both Iraq wars, in each of those circumstances, an exhausted American public said, we just want to come home and take care of ourselves. And in each one of those circumstances, says this proud globalist, um, the vacuum didn't remain unfilled. The vacuum was filled by bad actors and by dangerous individuals forcing us to re-engage on the world stage. And it shouldn't be surprising to us that if after every major me military conflict and after every significant economic downturn, in the immediate aftermath of the longest war in American history in Afghanistan, and after both the Great Recession and the pandemic, it shouldn't be surprising that a very fatigued American public is once again looking inward from both the right and the left. Uh, that concerns me greatly. Um, I became a, a Republican um, at roughly the age that most of you are now. And the reason I did is because at that point, at the height of the Cold War, 
I still had a lot of family members, both in the Soviet Union and the broader Soviet bloc. We still have family in Ukraine, um, which is another conversation. But at that time, one of the real victims of the Cold War was a very large number of Soviet Jews that are horrifically oppressed by the Soviet Union. And I came to believe that a more interventionist America on the world stage could better provide a pathway to safety for those immigrants and those refugees. It's funny, there's a famous quote, you probably all heard it from Mark Twain. He said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So I talk to my students today whose families have come from Latin America, from the Pacific Rim, from the Middle East and North Africa as immigrants, as, as refugees, as asylum seekers. And what we realize in conversation is while that their family stories aren't identical to mine, they're similar enough in that what saved my family was a U.S. at that point in world history, being willing to stand up and offer those oppressed peoples something better. When we look inward, not only does it damage us economically, because free trade does help all countries involved, not only does it damage us economically, not only does it make us less safe, because when we're less engaged in the rest of the world, it does provide opportunities for bad actors and aggressors. But I think worst of all, it dramatically limits our definition of human rights and human value. In other words, if I only worry about the rights of people who look like me and live near me, I'm horribly undermining the concept of that term. If I really believe in human rights and human freedom and human dignity, I have to believe it not just in terms of people, like I said, who look like me or live within a driving distance of me. I have to believe that about people in Ukraine and in Israel and in Northwest China and in so many other places around the world. And when we retreat to our own borders, we're basically saying, well, those people are someone else's problem. We're not going to worry about them anymore. I don't think that's necessarily a conservative or a progressive principle. I think it's an American principle that you stand up for those people and try to offer them something better, even if it's inconvenient. And even if you're tired, because we've gone through a difficult stretch of challenges here at home. Um, do I think the Republican Party is reverting further toward isolationism? I do, but I'll answer that question more confidently after the primaries are over next spring. Because I think we have seen in the Republican primary a very dramatic split between Trump and DeSantis and Ramaswamy on one side, who do represent that pre-Cold War conservative isolationism that you were talking about. And then we've seen candidates like Haley, like Pence, like Christie, who represent more of a late 20th, early 21st century conservatism that does believe in a more assertive role in the world. And I think the outcome of that primary is going to tell us a lot about where the party's headed on many issues, but particularly on this question of globalism versus isolationism. Thank you so much. I think you really provide a very critical and important perspective. And honestly, I feel like I'm in a masterclass right now. <laughs> it's, it's really great. I feel like I'm, just like I'm getting a collegiate level conversation with a very educated professor and I, I feel really honored and just as we're continuing this discussion 
it's really reminding me of just like this whole idea of like the two-party system and is it really a blame game or time that both sides really take accountability it just has me thinking about um in my history class recently we were going over the revolutionary war and the start of this country and just how george washington when in like his closing address to the nation he was just like essentially saying that the whole idea of parties worried him because he wasn't sure if that was particularly should have been one of our biggest priorities and that it could drown out what the like the bigger picture overall as the nation went forward but yet we see we obviously looking in today's age we definitely have political parties and they definitely drive a lot of opinions that we have about the world around us about ourselves, about our communities, and about the issues that come up every day. And something that I like to reflect and think about often is how, like, today we see how there's a stereotype for Democrats, for example, and there's a stereotype for Republicans, and we try to fit people in a box, I feel like, what a Democrat looks like, what a Republican looks like, which I believe can be very toxic when trying to really hone in on what your political values and beliefs are are. And so I say all of this because I want to get your take on what do you think as young people we can do to ensure that as we're forming these political opinions and beliefs about the world around us, what can we do to ensure that we're getting the full story and not just half of the story of, say, the party that we're affiliated with? How do we really broaden our perspective so that our opinions are not only centralized, but also globalized, because like you said, that's what makes, I think, America, America is that fact that we have things that we address here, but we also are very involved in the things that are going on in the world around us. And so what can we do to ensure that we're the most educated as physically possible so that we can make informed decisions for ourselves? And if we hypothetically were to ever get involved in politics, making the inform decisions for constituents, for those who may align with our political ideology and for those who may not? Well, so first of all, Hannah, I will tell you, I was going to say to the group at the end of our conversation that if any of you would find yourselves in California at some point and be interested in sitting in in one of my classes, you'd be more than welcome to. But Hannah, I just decided that I think I might need you instead of sitting in to, to observe in class, I think I might ask you to come as a guest lecturer. So let's let's negotiate that one out, okay? But I think you raise a couple of really good points. I'm going to try to address them both. Once you talked about, you talked about George Washington, his concern about parties. And I would say this, I think George Washington, obviously a brilliant leader. Um, I think he either, depending on your definition, either underestimated or overestimated us. And I don't mean as Americans, I mean, as human beings, we are, we are a tribal species. This is something that goes back to prehistoric days when our most distant ancestors banded together for mutual protection and sustenance. If I hunt a saber-toothed tiger by myself, I get eaten. If I put together a group to do it with me, then maybe I have have dinner. This has become part of who we are as a species. It's not cultural or sociological. It's chemical and biological. Our natural instinct is to cluster into groups. And so I think Washington warning about parties was concerned that by clustering into groups, once we form an us, that means there has to be a them. And once there's a them, them, it's an easy, very easy, not just to stereotype them, but to blame them for everything. Jonathan Haidt, the New York sociologist, whose whose writings I would strongly recommend, says, 
The worst number of political parties to have is one. The second worst number of political parties to have is two. Because then it becomes black and white and there's no in between. And a multiple party system does allow for options. And we alluded to this at the very beginning of today's conversation. This is the reason I think that Gen Z is going to be the one to institute a multi-party system in a way that my generation did not. My generation, your parents, we grew up with three television networks, five buttons on the car radio, and two political parties. In every aspect of our lives, we had a very finite number of choices that were defined for us. Today, of course, we all have thousands, millions of options for entertainment, for information and opinion online, right? So for a generation like all of you, that grew up with an unlimited range of options for information, for opinion and entertainment, the idea of limiting yourself to an artificial binary choice makes much less sense than it did for a generation that was already limited in the number of TV networks and radio stations that we had available to us. Generation Z volunteers its time back into the community in greater levels than any other generation in America today or recent American history. And what I've learned about volunteering is when you're working with someone on behalf of a cause, whether it's a neighborhood watch or a community cleanup, whether it's you know, volunteering to support the brave young women of Iran, whatever it is, that topic brings in people from across the ideological spectrum. So if, if, if Hiba and Inu and I are bringing meals to seniors or teaching at-risk youth to read, it doesn't matter if we're liberal or conservative. We're making our community a better place to live. So when we do begin debating more conventional politics and policy, if one of us happens to disagree with the other, I don't think that person is evil or stupid because I know them from the community watch, from the community cleanup. I don't think there's something evil about them. I don't think of them as the other. I think of them as that really neat, good person who I see on Saturdays, who I happen to disagree with on this issue. It makes it much easier to work with that person when I understand the whole of them as opposed to a caricature of them that I form out of one disagreement on one single issue. The other point that you brought up, Hannah, which I think is so important, is how to become as well-educated and what I'll add is as well-rounded in our education as possible. And this is not just for high school students or for college students. I think your parents and grandparents have just as much, if not more, to benefit from that as you do, because I know I still do. Every once in a while, I'll be giving a, a talk off campus, a speech to an old person's audience. And someone will ask me very, will ask me a less informed version of the question that you asked me, Hannah. They'll say, what can I read to get the real news? Where can I go to get the facts? Where can I go to get information that's not slanted one way or another? And I tell them, I said, I'm going to answer your question, but you have to answer mine first. My question to you is, I asked them, I said, who's your magic friend? And they say, what do you mean? And I said, who's the friend you have that you do whatever they say, no matter what? If they like a movie, you go to it. If they like a restaurant, you go to it. If they go somewhere on vacation, you go there too. If they buy a certain kind of clothes, you do the same thing. No matter what it is, you automatically do what they do. Who's that friend for you? And of course, nobody has a friend like that, right? We all seek out a range of opinions from people we know before we make a decision. 
So if we do that for movies, if we do that for restaurants, if we do that for clothes, if we do that for music, why wouldn't we do it for politics too? And rather than trying to establish a magic friend online somewhere who's going to have the absolute truth when it comes to all the information you could possibly want, the key is to seek out a range of information sources from the far left to the far right and everywhere in between. And India, this is why I was so impressed by your question about Republicans early when you told me about the environment in which you often find yourself. And so the last, I told you that I was going to tell you this earlier, at the end of every semester, very last class, I tell the students, I say, okay, I'm going to give you one final assignment. And it's the most important assignment I can give you that I've given you all semester long, but I can't grade it because today's the last day of class, right? But it's still the most important assignment I'm ever going to give you. I said, I want every principled conservative in this room to watch Rachel Maddow once a week. And I want every principled progressive in this room to read George Will or Ross Douthat or Brett Stevens, three respected conservative columnists, to read one of them once a week. I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm not even trying to open your mind. I'm trying to remind you that there's really smart people over there on the other side, too. And Ben Sass, the former senator from Nebraska, who's now the president of the University of Florida, he has a term that I love. He says leads to polarization and partisanship. He calls it nutpicking. Not nitpicking. We all know what nitpicking is, right? So he says nutpicking is, is looking at the nuttiest, weirdest, loudest, most obnoxious, stupidest person on the other side, whether the other side is Democrat or Republican, saying, look at him, look at her. What an idiot. What a moron. What a nut. I can't work with them because there's people like that over there. Well, there are people like that on the other side, whichever other side there is. But there's really smart people over there, too. And if you're a principled conservative who's willing to listen to Rachel Maddow, you might not agree with her, but you're going to respect her intelligence. Just like if you're a principled progressive and you read one of these conservative columnists, you might not want to agree with what they write, but you're going to develop a better understanding of why they've come to a different opinion. And to me, the best way to educate yourself in the way that Hannah was asking about is to expose yourself to a range of opinions and insights and perspectives and backgrounds and pick and choose between them. The other thing I've given you in addition to my email address is my website. Um, I write two columns every week. One for a friend of mine, he runs a website called All Sides, which posts news and opinion from across the ideological spectrum from left to right. And then I also, another friend of mine is the publisher of a newspaper here in Los Angeles called the Jewish Journal. And I write for the Jewish Journal every week, often, but not always, on issues relating to Israel and the Jewish community, often on mainstream politics. I also host a monthly webinar for our World Affairs Council out here, and you can find all that on the website. So that's the end of our commercial break. And I'll return you to our regularly scheduled program. And I know I've talked all your ears off and all your heads off, but if any of the four of you has one last question, I'd be happy to answer it before I let you get on with your evenings. It's just to touch upon, I guess a lot of us wanted to know about how you utilize your time to be able to do the variety of things that you can do. Um, so like, if you can share a couple of tips and tricks, that, that would be nice to know. 
so this is really practically manual, isn't it? it on the off chance that there's anyone uh, in this conversation who's really smart and really determined and really high achieving and really ambitious, does that fit anyone's description here? I didn't think so. Um, is there anyone of the four of you who would describe yourself as being a perfectionist? I don't know about you, but I try to be one. So here's what I'll offer you is since we know intellectually that nothing can ever be perfect, that means we can work on something forever trying to make it perfect, even if we know we can never get it there. I had a boss years ago, one of my first bosses in politics was just this brilliant woman. And of course, there's a time demand on politics, even election coming up. And I'd always want to make something better and even better and even better than that. And finally, she'd say, Dan, that's perfect enough. And I love that phrase because I'm not compromising my standards. I'm just realizing I can't do everything perfectly. And I think with this, Emmanuel, there's a lesson of leadership that I teach. Academics, higher elementary and secondary education, for better or for worse, we define success in an individual way. You don't get group grades, right? You get a grade for yourself. So what we've done to you, by the time you've finished 12 years of K through 12, and four years of college, after 16 years, we've trained you to think that success is an individual accomplishment. And what we've also done, particularly for smart, determined, ambitious people like all of you, is we've trained you that you've got to be good at everything. You're all applying to colleges right now, and you know what that's like. Oh my gosh, you got to have good grades, you got to have good test scores, you got to play an instrument, you got to play a sport, you got to volunteer in your community. You have to go to a third world country and help them start their democracy, all to put it on your college application. But what happens is once you get out of college, we change the rules on you. Up until now, we want you to be good at everything. Once you get out, we want you to specialize. Look, I've got a really good doctor. I don't care whether she plays the tuba. I just want her to be a good doctor. And by the same token, what's going to happen to all of you over the next four or five or six years is you're going to find something or some things to concentrate on. And rather than trying to be good at everything, you're going to say, this is what I'm really interested in. This is what really motivates me. This is what I'm going to be great at. And what that has to do with leadership is the best leaders realize that they're not good at everything. And the natural instinct for a really smart, determined young person is if you're not good at something, is to think, well, I should get, I, I'll get better at it. And that's wrong. What the best leaders do is they don't try to get great at everything. What the best leaders do is they realize what they're best at. And then they put together a team of people who are really good at the things that you're not as good at. I like to say that leadership is a team sport. And even the best leaders can't change the worlds on their own. But if you recruit other people to work with you toward your goals, and each of you are good at a different aspect of that task, that's much more efficient and much more likely to be successful than you yourself trying to be good at everything. Ever see Ocean's 11 or Ocean's 12, the movies? Each one of the criminals has one particular thing that they're good at. George Clooney didn't try to be good at everything, right? Julie Roberts didn't try to be great at everything. They recruited each different person who was great at one thing. And that's what leaders do. And what that means, and this can be the hardest thing to be happy to follow up with you, if you like, and feel free to email to me. The hardest task that I give my students in any of my classes in the leadership class 
one of their assignments is to put together what I call a ruthless self-inventory. And what a ruthless self-inventory is, is a comprehensive list of all of your strengths, of all the things you're really good at, and a list of all your weaknesses, all the things that you're really bad at. And that's really difficult to do because you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I wish I was better at this, but I'm not, and put it down on paper. That's not easy. But the first step toward being a successful leader is of identifying those strengths so you can build on them and identifying those weaknesses so you can make an intelligent, informed decision about whether to try to improve on them or whether to find a way to recruit someone to work with who can help you through those things. So I think I lost a little bit of track of your original question, Emmanuel. But what I would say is for those of us who tend to be overworked, it is because we think we have to be great at everything. And if leadership is a team sport, spending the time to recruit a team, and Emmanuel, I don't know you very well yet, but I'm guessing what you're thinking now is, well, I could recruit a bunch of other people to work with me, but they're not going to do this as well as I would. Well, that's okay. If somebody else in your class can do something 80% as well as you can, that's just fine because that allows you to do what only you can do even better. And for those of us who think we have to do everything all on our own, those are the ones of us who end up way too stressed out because we think we have to do everything. A friend of mine gave me a saying years ago. It was an acronym for when I get carried away this way, thinking I have to be the one to solve all the world's problems. She called it FIAD. And FIAD is an acronym. And what it stood for was, for I am Dan. I mean, is most people can't do everything. Most people can't solve all the world's problems, but I will succeed where mere mortals fail. For I am Dan. So I will take on all these tasks. And in case there's a for I am Hiba or if I am Inyo or if I am Hannah or if I am Emmanuel, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You think you're the one person who can do everything? And the truth is, the most indispensable thing about you is to inspire others through your leadership so you can work together rather than feeling like you have to do everything yourself. On the topic of extended elections and being able to see the way that candidates can change in response to exhaustion or stress, it seems that a lot of people, regardless of seeing that, still decide to vote for the people in their party, the front runners of their party during campaigns, um, despite not sharing views or beliefs um, on what the country should be. And I guess maybe that's in spite of just not wanting the other party to win um, or to stay loyal. But what do you think about that? And I know this is a little vague, but how do you think that this will manifest in the 2024 elections um, with very, very polarized candidates, one who's actually been indicted and the other one who's been caught in the current explosion of tensions in Palestine and Israel right now? Did you say that wasn't a very specific question? It's well, specific to me. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> question. It's a great question. So there's, there's a, a concept in political science called negative partisanship. And I don't know if you guys have had a chance to read it yet, the way you're nodding, I suspect you're already familiar with the term. Um, I assign it to my classes. But what I will tell you, I assigned it along with this book. Ezra Klein's a progressive journalist. Ben Sass is a conservative politician. They read both books. And the joke in class is they're both the same book, just written from opposite ends of the spectrum. 
So when you heard me talking about humans being a tribal species, you know that wasn't my idea. You knew that was Ezra Klein's, and I should have given him credit for that. So don't get me in trouble, okay? Um, so let's talk. About, okay, he was going to get me in trouble. I can see this coming already. I'm going to end up with a copyright lawsuit. Thanks. Um, so negative partisanship you've already read about. But with Klein, uh, I'll add to Klein a little bit to put it in some historical context. Because for most of our country's history, most voters decided who to support based on the candidate who they admired the most, the party in which they felt most at home. Who do they like? A negative partisanship, as Klein talks about, and I think he's exactly right, saying, I'm going to make my decision not on who I like, but on who I hate. Not on who I want to support, but on who I'm afraid of. Now, one thing he doesn't talk about in his book that I do talk about in my class, <laughs> is the impact of negative campaigning. We know when a candidate campaigns in a way in which they criticize their opponent, we know that two things happen. Number one, that's a very effective way for a candidate to mobilize their own supporters. The only better way to mobilize my own supporters is with a purely positive message. But if I don't have a message that inspires my base, if I can't inspire them with a positive aspirational message, the other way to motivate my supporters is by frightening them about my opponent. The other thing a negative message does is it discourages my opponent's supporters from voting. A negative message doesn't change anyone's mind. Yeah, if, if a Republican says something harsh about a Democrat, those progressive voters aren't going to vote for a Republican and vice versa. So what does a negative message do? It doesn't convince someone on the other side to change their mind. It makes them say, what's the use? So let's say you're a very uh, ardent conservative and you hear a lot of negative messaging about the Republican candidate. You don't say, well, I guess I'll vote for Bernie. What the heck? You say, what's the use? Why bother? I disagree with the other side and my own candidate is flawed, so I'm just not going to bother at all. So what a negative message does is it drives down turnout it discourages people from participating in politics. And what we have now, and I say this not as a criticism or a compliment, just an observation, we have two candidates, both Biden and Trump, who have a very difficult time, for very different reasons, motivating their own parties with a positive message. And so what they know is if Trump is going to turn out conservatives, even if they're uncomfortable with the indictments and yeah, his other stuff, he can scare them about the Democrats. And even if Biden knows that young voters and progressives and voters from communities of color don't think he's been nearly as aggressive as he should have been on the issues that are important to them, well, by talking about Trump and about the Dobbs decision, he can motivate them too. So that does drive down turnout because you're telling a huge swath of the electorate that neither candidate is worth their time. The other thing to remember about negative messaging is it's a sugar high that wears off more quickly. If I tell you something positive about my candidate, something that you really admire, that characteristic is going to stick with you for a while. When I tell them something, when I tell you something about the opponent that makes you dislike them, you dislike them very intensely for a very short period of time. And then it's over. So one, I drive down voter turnout by telling the voters that they don't have a reasonable choice before them. And then second, coming all the way back full circle to where we started, 
um, I tell them that politics isn't worth their time. There's nothing here to be interested in. Because once that momentary sugar rush of a negative message wears off, there's nothing left. The good news, because we're not going to close on that note, the good news, and I'm not just buttering you up, I don't have any reason to, is I believe for the reasons I mentioned earlier, that your generation is uniquely positioned to confront these challenges in a way that mine did not. One, it's because of your commitment to volunteerism. Second, it's because you have access to a world of information and communication that no previous generation has ever had. And we didn't talk about communications today, but you are empowered in a way that young leaders have never before been empowered in human history to talk back to power and to talk horizontally toward each other in a way that's never, ever been possible before. But third, in addition to the tools of technology and in addition to your commitment to volunteerism and community, I think the most important reason your generation is so uniquely qualified to take on this challenge is you're the most diverse generation in human history. And when I grow up with people who look and talk differently than me, I realize that those are just surface characteristics. And just because they look or talk differently doesn't make them them, it doesn't make them the other. And if when it comes time for me to form a coalition, I'm willing to reach out to the entire community rather than just the half of it that I think agrees with me, I'm in a much better position to put together a stable path forward because I've asked everyone to be involved rather than just some of the people. That's all for today with Next Generation Politics. I'm editor Vanessa Chen signing off. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org podcast for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded.